Take your Bibles, if you would please, and turn me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. We are slowly making our way through the good news about the Lord Jesus as recorded for us by the Apostle Matthew. And today we're going to read from verses 13 through 20. We're going to consider this passage together, Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Hatton Robinson once uh, preached a sermon that consisted entirely of a parable. It was a parable that he wrote. I'm not sure we're supposed to imitate this teaching method of Jesus, but he gave it a shot and it wasn't too bad. Uh, It was a long time ago that I listened to it, but here's what I remember. Robinson told the story about a congregation, a church, a member of the Church of God in Christ denomination that was uh, centered, uh, the, the building was on top of a hill in Kentucky just outside one of those towns, you know those towns in Kentucky that have such great names, Pigs Hollow or West Philistia or something like that. You know those great Kentucky names, nothing like Intercourse or Blue Ball or Bird in Hand, but those weird Kentucky town names. And uh, this Church of God in Christ had been there for 150 years. For 150 years, people have been meeting there on Sunday morning to worship and sing hymns. And they hosted VBS in the summertime. They held revival meetings out back where they'd set up a big tent. It was a a congregation uh, where grandmothers and mothers and grandchildren uh, all came uh, to worship, generations. Well, uh, in in addition to uh, singing the hymns and the VBS, you know that this church had dinners. In fact, this church had a collection of faithful, skilled women who could cook, and boy, could they cook. And every Sunday from May to the end of September, this church hosted uh, luncheons. Fried chicken was a specialty, but they had all the fixings to go along with it. And potato salad and baked beans and pie and rolls and pie, lots of pie. Um, they uh, noticed, though, over time that they had a, a couple of problems. One of the problems was that it took a long time to get the dinner ready. A lot of time went into preparation. Sometimes it was a couple hours after the service was over before uh, they could actually start eating, and that made for some grumpy congregations. The other thing that they noticed is that when the women would come out of the church, some of the women would go down to the kitchen, some would go out to the pavilion next door where they held uh, these luncheons. When the women would come out uh, immediately after the last uh, uh, song was sung, they, they noticed there were some extra cars in the parking lot. There were people sitting there who had come for the lunch, but not for church. They came up with a pretty clever solution to that. Here's what they did. They started charging for lunch 
just a little bit, enough to cover expenses. But if you had a bulletin from church that day, you could get in for free. So you had to either have the bulletin or a few dollars, and you could uh, participate in the lunch. The other problem, the, the time problem they solved, well, at first, no one really wanted to do it, but after a while, they saw the advantage. Uh, they decided to shorten the service a little bit. The first thing they did was they cut the second verse of all of the hymns, because who needs to sing all four verses every time of the hymns that you sing? Come on, who does that? So they just decided at first to skip uh, verse 2. They saw the advantage to that, and, and the service got a little shorter, too. They used to read from the Old Testament and the New Testament during the service. Then they decided to just to alternate. We'll do Old Testament one week, New Testament the next week. People kept coming. There's more and more people in the parking lot. They were feeding more and more people at the Church of God in Christ. And you know what happened. They started singing, well, they went from five hymns every Sunday to four hymns to three hymns. And the sermon became a homily, which became a devotional. Choir started singing less often. I mean, we got all these people, all these people to feed. We got things to do. And, you know, they, they, they started to make a little bit of money on this luncheon. They used it. It was great. They, they sent missionaries all over the place because of the money that they were making from the uh, chicken dinners. They painted the, the church. They, they were able to close in the pavilion and add air conditioning. I mean, they didn't let the money go to waste. You know what happened. If you go now to the Church of God in Christ in Pigs Hollow, Kentucky, you know what, what you'll find. They kept the name. If you're looking for a good Sunday dinner, it's a great place to go. I highly recommend it. You pull up, you'll see the sign right above the pavilion. It will say, welcome to the Church of God in Christ Chicken Restaurant. It's a great place to eat. Highly recommend it. In honor of their heritage, before they open, somebody prays. They open uh, their meal in prayer still. And they play hymns through the sound system that they had installed. The church building is still on the property. It's across the brand new expanded parking lot the church building is. And um, you can go in while you're waiting for your dinner, uh, while you're waiting for your turn to eat at the Church of God in Christ Chicken Restaurant. You can go over to the church building and sit down and, and they show old slides from VBSs that they used to do on, on a screen up front and play recordings of the, the church playing, uh, of the choir singing hymns. Again, if you're looking for lunch, there is no better place to go than the Church of God in Christ Chicken Restaurant. Now that's Haddon Robinson's story, and it's a rather transparent parable, isn't it? The, the warning that's there is pretty close to the surface. It's a warning for a church about congregational drift, the dangers of congregational drift. It can happen easily. A church have to pay attention so this doesn't happen, but a church can easily become a social club or it can easily become a community charity organization. It can become a political action community, a committee. It can become a child care agency. That drift is often motivated by, by good things. The, church need, uh, the world needs charities and the world needs uh, responsible child care agencies and the world needs people to speak up in the public square about important issues. 
Usually that's easier. It, it's, it's easier to do those things than it is to do the things that uh, Jesus calls the church to do here in this passage. Hatton Robinson is concerned about drift. And to help us as we think about this, we come to this passage, which is one of the mountain peaks in the Gospel of Matthew. It's one of the most important passages in Matthew. It's important because this is a climactic profession of faith by the disciples, and it is in a significant way and a, a turning point in the ministry of Jesus. We've been watching this turning that Jesus is making at, for a few chapters, but here it is, the announcement of Jesus, by Jesus, of a new people, the church, used in the Gospels for the first time here by the Lord Jesus. This word that means assembly, this is Jesus' new people. And we are, on Walnut Hill Road here, a local expression of this new people of Jesus. And this passage tells us what we're supposed to be doing. You might not be surprised to hear that this is the most discussed paragraph in all of Matthew because this is the paragraph that our Roman Catholic friends believe where Jesus not only announces the formation of the church, he also establishes, they believe, the papacy. Peter's the first pope and the pope Pope Francis today rules with the authority that Jesus gave to Peter here. And, and the Pope is the infallible leader of the church. Well, I think our Roman Catholic friends are overreading what this passage says. And I hope to show that to you today. But let me back up and tell you where we're going to go, how we're going to unfold this passage. I think here in this scripture, Jesus gives two foundational truths about the church of Christ. First of all, it tells us that this is a, a confessing community founded by Jesus. And then secondly, it tells us we're to be a proclaiming community authorized by Jesus. We're going to go back to this passage and I want to walk through it because I want us to remember what we're supposed to be doing, what Jesus authorized, commissioned us to do. We're going to do a little bit of, of something that Joseph Sittler, a Lutheran a theologian in the 20th century, told us to do. Look what Joseph Sittler said. There is certainly nothing wrong with the church looking ahead, but it is terribly important that it should be done in connection with the look inside, into the church's own nature and mission, and a look behind at her own history. If the church does this, she is less likely to take her cues from the business community, the corporation, or the marketplace. So let's look back, shall we, at this passage. We're going to find, first of all here, that the church, by Jesus' design, is a confessing community founded by Jesus. A confessing community founded by Jesus. Now, this is a narrative passage of Scripture, so we should think about setting. Where is Jesus? Verse 13 emphasizes this. Jesus is in the region of Caesarea Philippi. And Caesarea Philippi was at the far northern border of Israel. It was about as far north in this region as you could get without passing into uh, Syria to the north. And uh, because of its location, there were not a lot of Jews there. And Jesus was not as well known. He was well known in the sea area of the Sea of Galilee. Thousands of people would come here. But up north, he was less well-known, and it seems like he's taken his disciples there for a time of, of interpersonal training. He wants to do some specific focused training with the disciples. It's also almost as if he's at the door of Israel on the threshold, and he's got the door open as if he's saying to the disciples, here we go, something new, something new. 
He asked the disciples as part of their training the simple question, who do people say the Son of Man is? The Son of Man, of course, is one of Jesus' favorite self-designations. And they give some unsurprising answers. All of them are positive. None of the negative answers. If they were being negative, (laughs) they say, well, the Pharisees think you're in league with the devil. They didn't say that. They instead focus on prophets. Some people say you're John the Baptist. That was Herod's view. Do you remember that? Some people say you're Elijah. Some people say you're Jeremiah, one of the prophets. I'm not sure how this worked out. Uh, The Jews did not believe in reincarnation. I'm not sure how they were thinking that Jesus was going to be one of these prophets. Uh, But there was a strong vein of belief that before the Messiah comes, before the end of the age comes, these great prophets of the Old Testament would make an appearance. And, and, And people are talking about Jesus, that he is a spokesman for God. He's a prophet from God. He's a teacher from God. And they're on the right track. They're on the right track. But that's an insufficient view, an inadequate view. It's a popular view, though, even today, isn't it? There are a lot of people who say Jesus was a good teacher. Jesus was a religious man. Jesus was a spiritual man. Jesus was a prophet, even, as a matter of fact. But you reread this passage, you'll find out that if that's your view in light of this passage, you can't continue to hold that if you're going to listen to what Jesus says. He is more than what the people in his day think he is. Jesus turns to the disciples. Who do you say that I am? You, who do you, th- you is emphatic. What about you? And thereby he asks the greatest question that anybody can ever be asked. Who do you think Jesus is? Every human being will have to give an answer to that question. Scott McKnight has taught at, at um, North Park University outside of Chicago in the seminary with, associated with that school for a number of years. When he first started with his undergraduate students, on day one, he would give them a test, a 24-question test, uh, assessing their knowledge, their impressions, rather, of, of the Lord Jesus. They weren't questions about, you know, trivia questions, where was he born and what miracle did he do first, things like that. It was questions about how, how they perceived Jesus to be. For example, is Jesus moody? Does Jesus ever get nervous? Is Jesus the life of the party or is he an introvert? 24 questions like that. And then uh, he would collect their answers, and then he would hand out another test, and he said, you know, we're just trying to get to know one another, so I want you to answer some questions about yourself. And uh, they were very thinly disguised, these next 24 questions. They were the same questions about Jesus that he just asked them, but they were a little bit disguised, so it wouldn't be quite obvious. He was asking them the same questions about themselves that he asked about Jesus. Right? You understand what he did? Then he would collect them and he would compare them. And he's done this for a lot of years and other people have done it. It's been tested. And lo and behold, you compare the two tests from people and what you discover is that everyone thinks that Jesus is just like them. Scott McKnight said, the test results suggest that we like to think we are becoming more like Jesus. The reverse is probably the case We try to make Jesus like ourselves. Anybody ever had that problem? Of course Jesus is an introvert. I mean, I'm an introvert. That's what good people are. So Jesus must be an introvert, right? Who do you say that I am? Who am I? And Simon Peter's answer is, you are the Messiah, 
the son of the living God. Now we're familiar with the word Messiah. It's Messiah in Hebrew. It's Greek and Aramaic. Uh, Sorry, it's Christ. Let me try that again. Messiah in Hebrew and Christ in Greek mean the same thing. Anointed one. Anointed one. Back even in the beginning of the scriptures, as early as Genesis chapter 3, God had promised that he was going to send a deliverer, the deliverer, the anointed one, who would come and rescue human beings from the mess that we have made of this world. God made this world as an overflow of an ex- his, his love, and he made us to live in it, to obey him, and to walk with him, and to follow him. But we have rejected him, and we have made the world a mess. But God says, I will send a rescuer. And there are prophecies and promises all the way through the Old Testament about this rescuer that will come. How often do you hear sirens at your house? Do you hear sirens at your house often? Fire trucks, ambulances. I hear the sirens and I think to myself, um, actually I have two thoughts. My first thought is, I hope they're not going to church, our church. It's odd that a pastor would say, I hope that person's not going to church. But uh, uh, our security system, it gets dusty, it gets dirty, it gets wires crossed. And, and the fire department, we've had very successful uh, opportunities to invite the fire department to our church over the years. They've come many times. So that's usually my first thought is, I hope, it's not there. I hope they're not going to church. My second thought is, that they're going to rescue somebody, rescue somebody in need. You read the Old Testament and you hear the siren constantly. God's promise, his announcement, rescue's coming, rescue's on his way. In the course of time, we learn that this rescuer is going to be a descendant of Abraham. He's going to be a Jew by ethnicity. Then we discover he's going to be the descendant of Judah, one of Abraham's great-great-grandsons. Then we learn that he's going to be the descendant of David, great King David. Uh, The Messiah is going to be his descendant. Uh, and, and that's how Peter would most often think about him. You're the son of David. You're the Messiah. You're the deliverer that God has promised to, to us. Then he says, you're the son of the living God. I wonder what Peter means by this. I know what I think this phrase means. And I know what Matthew thinks this phrase means. But I wonder if at this moment... Peter understands the significance of what he's saying. This may be an example of Peter saying more than he knows. Usually Peter says less than he knows, but in this instance, he may be saying more than he knows. But here's the question that that comes up. What does Peter mean? See, in the Hebrew scriptures, there was an association of the Messiah that the Messiah would have a special relationship with God. In fact, it would be as if this son of David, this human being born uh, a descendant of David, would be like God's adopted son. Psalm 2, on coronation day, God's going to adopt David's son, and and he'll be God's son in that sense, his his adopted son. And one wonders, is that what Peter is thinking? You're the Messiah. You're the one that God's going to use. God's going to choose. God's going to welcome and have a special relationship with you. That's who you are. Is that what he's thinking? What Peter is thinking? Or is he, has, has he gotten to the point where he's identifying Jesus by his nature? The disciples are going to come to learn this. It's in the New Testament. We believe that Jesus is God the Son in the flesh that he's the incarnate son of God, that he is the co-eternal, co-equal son, God the son, God's co-equal, eternal, um, eternal with the father. 
that he is. Is, is Peter here affirming the full divinity of Jesus? I'm not sure. I think Peter is probably somewhere in between those two. But this confession, this confession, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. This confession is central to who we are as a people. It's one of the realities that shapes us as a people, this identify, this confession about the Lord Jesus, what we believe about the Lord Jesus. And it's one of the things that you should think about as you consider following Jesus. Tim Keller talks to a lot of people who are curious Christians. People who are not curious Christians, but people who are curious about Christianity. And, and they, they come to him and they say, you know, I, I'm really exploring Christianity. I'm kind of intrigued by Jesus. I'm really interested in Christianity. But you know, I've read some of the Bible and some of the Bible, some of the things that it commands people to do. Love the poor. I mean, I don't hate the poor and, and I'm willing to help the poor, but loving the poor is that's 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 a lot and oh don't get me started with what the bible says about sex so repressive i i'm interested in christianity but i have some conditions i have some things i'm not willing to give up i'm not willing to consider because well mm, no tim keller says if god is true though if the god that christians worship is real if he's really the source of all beauty and glory and life, and if he really, if knowing Christ fills your life with his goodness and power and joy so that you will uh, live with him in endless ages with his life increasing in you, if that's true, there are no conditions that should keep you from following him. It'd be like if, if you're really sick, really, really sick, with a disease, a terrible disease that's going to kill you painfully, and a doctor comes along and says, I have a cure for you. You just use this cure, and it will, it will give you help. It will, it will keep this disease away. You'll live. You'll survive. You, you could live for 50 more years. Use this cure of mine. But, but, oddly enough, oddly enough, I don't know why, but if you use this cure, you can never eat chocolate again in your whole life. How would you advise your friend if your friend's like, What? No chocolate, I'd rather be dead, right? Does that make any sense at all? No, we're talking about life, like life. Hershey is not worth dying for. Life. Some of you, are, you're trying to do some math in your head for figuring out if it's worth it. Pagans, pagans. If Christ is really God, there's no conditions, no conditions. We come to Jesus Christ and we say, Lord, anywhere your will touches my life, I will obey. You can reorder my life, completely reorder my life because you are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. It's around this confession that Jesus announces the new assembly, the new assembly that he's going to form. He calls it my church, and he's going to build this church. Odd mix of metaphors in this passage. I will build, usually what do we say? I will build a building, usually. He says, I will build a people. It's not just going to be any sort of people. It's going to be a military people because they're going to be at war. I will build an army is what he's saying here. 
and the gates of Hades are not going to prevail over it, not overcome it. This is odd too. Gates are usually defensive weapons. You attack gates. Gates don't usually attack you. But he seems to talk about them as gates being on the offensive. The gates will not overpower the church. I, it's a mystery, not mystery, it's difficult to think about what he means. I think the NIV might be onto something when it says, it points us to the gates of Hades being the realm of the dead. There is an image in the Old Testament, in the scriptures, that when someone dies, death is like a prison and you get locked behind bars. Death is a prison and when you die, you get locked up. But it, it, and think about this though, for Jesus' people... You will die and maybe in the prison, but you're not going to stay there because the gates of Hades can't contain Jesus' people. We sing the song at, at Easter time. We haven't yet this year. We'll get to it sometime. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph for his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, he arose, hallelujah, he, Christ arose. Verse 3. Death cannot keep its prey, Jesus my Savior. He tore the bars away, Jesus my Lord. Jesus is going to build a people that will be victorious even over, even over our worst enemy, death. I will build my church. Jesus says the church is his unconquerable work. It's not fragile, it's not something worth worrying over, panicking over. Local churches may have highs and lows. They may come and they may go, but the church will endure because it's Jesus' work. Which is going to last longer, your business or the church of Jesus Christ? Which is going to last longer, your bank or the church of Jesus Christ? You put all your money in the bank. Which is going to last longer, the bank or the church of Jesus Christ? Which is going to endure, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ or the United States of America? I believe in the church because I believe in the resurrection. And I believe Jesus promised when he says, I will build my church. Larry Norman, some of you recognize the name Larry Norman, was a leader of uh, the contemporary Christian music movement in the 60s and 70s, the Jesus movement. And somebody once came up to Larry Norman and said to him, uh, hey, are you the leader of the Jesus movement? And Larry Norman says, no, Jesus is. Well, I heard, they said, I heard that it started in your living room. And Larry Norman said, well, if it did, I wasn't home at the time. Uh, listen to a letter that Karl Marx wrote. It's not often you quote Larry Norman and Karl Marx back to back, but here we go. They had equally crazy hair, let's be honest. Okay, Karl Marx. When all the political foundations of religion are wiped out, when the organization and the institutional structure of the church are destroyed, then, and that was his goal, that was Marx's goal, to destroy these things. Then normally, religious faith, the Christian faith would have to disappear. But it is not out of the question that the Christian faith will survive anyhow. This would mean that there is a religious reality that does not depend solely on the sociological and the institutional. And under these conditions, we would have to heed this reality, which is not in the category of traditional religion. Professor Marx 
Resurrection is not in the category of traditional religion. I will build my church, Jesus says, and we are a confessing community founded by him. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, secondly, we see in this passage that we, the church, is a proclaiming community authorized by Jesus. A proclaiming community authorized by Jesus. It's a proclaiming community, even though I know in verse 20, Jesus says, don't tell anyone that I'm the Messiah. Don't tell anyone that I'm the Messiah. Why does he say this in verse 20? Because he's just revealed this to them and the disciples they don't understand what it means for him to be the Messiah. So he says, for now, keep it under wraps until I can train you some more. And then you need to tell everybody in the whole world. But for now, shh. Before that, though, in the verses preceding that, he, had, he commissioned them. He authorized them. Well, let's start with what he says to Peter. Notice the parallel. Peter says, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then Jesus says, you're Simon, the son of Jonah. Just like Jonah, uh, actually it should be John, just like John uh, is the father of Simon, so God is the father of the Lord Jesus. There is a relationship there. He says, blessed are you, for this is not revealed to you by, my, by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And verse 17 is important to remind us that salvation, because it is revealed from God, is a gift from God. It's not something that Peter figured out, not something that he earned, not something that became obvious to him because he spent a year and a half following Jesus at this point in time and seeing the miracles and hearing the sermons. It is something that has been revealed. God is the one who reveals his son. Actually, you can see this in how Matthew unfolds. Look at Matthew 1.1. It says, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's how Matthew starts his gospel. Then look at how God speaks about Jesus in Matthew 3.17. The Father says in Matthew 3.17, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Matthew, you can say to the world that Jesus is the Son of David and the Son of Abraham, but I, God the Father says, I am the one who will say he's my Son, my Son. Salvation is a gift because it's revealed. Matthew eleven twenty seven tells us this. This is how God reveals himself. All things have been committed to be by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Salvation is a gift because it's revealed. This puts me in mind of something that Paul said in Galatians 1, which I think will become more obvious why this is important in a few minutes. Galatians 1 I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Look, I didn't come up with this, Paul says. I, I, it did not come from flesh and blood. It was revealed to me by Jesus. Salvation is a gift because it's revealed. And then in chapter 2, Paul says, As for those who were held in high esteem, leaders of the church in Jerusalem, he names them in a minute, as for those who were held in high esteem, uh, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message, the gospel I preach. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter, now interesting, this is like the only place in his letters where Paul mentions Peter by the name Peter. He usually uses the name Cephas. It's almost as if Peter here is thinking about Galatians about Matthew 16, right? I've received, uh, Paul is thinking about Matthew 16. I've received 
this message, Paul says, just like Peter received this message. Just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. You're not a Christian because you're smarter than your non-Christian neighbors. You're not a Christian because you've figured it out. You are a Christian because God has opened your eyes to see the glory of Jesus so that you might believe in him. Salvation is a gift. It's a gift. And then Jesus offers, tells Peter about the role that he is going to play in his church. I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. Now, here is where our Roman Catholic friends, we disagree with our Roman Catholic friends about this interpretation of the scriptures. Our Roman Catholic friends believe that this is the foundation of the papacy here. And because of that interpretation, a lot of times we who are Protestants read this, we tend to downplay Peter's role and, and, and diminish his role and say things like, well, it's not Peter, it's actually his confession that's the rock. Or it's not Peter that's the rock, it's Jesus that's the rock. I, I think he's talking about Peter and I think he's talking about the special role that Peter is going to play in the church. Now, I want to skip ahead for a minute. Uh, can look at Isaiah 51, 1 to 2. Uh, which will show up right here. Isaiah 51, 1 to 2. Look, there's Old Testament background for this. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness and who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were cut and to the quarry from which you were hewn. Look to the rock. What's the rock? Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who gave you birth. When I called him, he was only one man, and I blessed him and made him many. Abraham, you're the rock of the nation of Israel. It's upon you that I'm going to build the nation. Peter, you're going to have a similar role to play in the church. You're going to be the rock, and I'm going to build on your work. Um, think about the role that Peter plays in the Gospel of Acts, in the, the book of Acts. Peter's always listed first as in the apostles, and then he's the one who in Acts chapter 2 preaches. He preaches in Acts chapter 2, and thousands of people become followers of Jesus. He, in Acts chapter 8, is the one who certifies that the gospel has gone to the Samaritans. He's the one that God uses in Acts chapter 10 to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Peter is so foundational. And Paul says in Ephesians 2.20 that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. Peter plays a very important role in the beginning of the church. Let's recognize that without turning Peter into the Pope. Why don't we turn Peter into the Pope? Well, because uh, Paul was commissioned like Peter and, and uh, binding and loosing authority that Peter receives in Matthew 16 is given to the whole church in Matthew 18 and Peter is supplanted by Paul in Acts chapter 12 and Peter is far from infallible. We'll see this week uh, Jesus says to Peter, you're the rock. And next week we'll see in chapter 16, Jesus says to Peter, you're still a rock, but you're a blockhead. You're the stumbling block this time. I don't, I don't see here the foundation of the papacy. I do see though an important role that Peter's gonna play. What role is that? We can go back again to the Old Testament for some help. We'll, we'll finish here shortly, but look at Isaiah 22 verse 20. 
And that day, I will summon my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. Now, I know you all know who Eliakim is. You don't know who Eliakim is. I had to look it up. Eliakim is... Uh, in 2 Kings chapter 18, there's King Hezekiah, and Eliakim is named as his chief administrator. So Eliakim works with Hezekiah to oversee palace life and to help Hezekiah administer his, his kingdom. Now look, in, in that day, I will summon my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and fashion your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and the people of Judah. I will place on his shoulder, look at this, the key to the house of David. He's going to get keys. Eliakim, I'm going to give him a key. And what's he going to do? What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. Now, look at Jeremiah 1, verse 9. Jeremiah 1, it's not in your notes, but here it's going to be on the screen. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. And then later, Jeremiah 1.13, the word of the Lord came to me again. What do you see? Jeremiah has a vision. I see a pot that is boiling, I answered. It is tilting toward us from the north. If you have boiling water tilting toward you, what's that mean? Run, Right? The Lord said to me, from the north, disaster will be poured out on all who live in the land. I am about to summon all the peoples of the northern kingdoms, declares the Lord. Their kings will come and set up their thrones in the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. They will come against all her surrounding walls and against all the towns of Judah. I will pronounce my judgments on my people because of their wickedness and forsaking me and burning incense to other gods and in worshiping what their hands have made. Get yourself ready. Stand up and say to them, whatever I command you, do not be terrified by them or I will terrify you before them. Today I have made you a fortified city, a rock. I have made you an iron pillar. I have made you a bronze wall to stand against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you but will not overcome you for I am with you and I will rescue you, declares the Lord. Peter, you're going to play a special role in the development of the church of Jesus Christ. What role is that? Peter, you're going to be like the steward in Jesus' house. Jesus is the king of the castle. And Peter, you're going to start this. The apostles will continue it. The church still does the same thing. You're going to have the keys and you're going to open the door so that people can come in to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And how's Peter going to do that? He's going to do it the same way Jeremiah was going to hold back these armies by the word of the Lord. Jesus says to Peter, you're going to go and proclaim the good news of who I am and what I have done. And by doing so, you're going to throw open the door so that people can come in. And when you say to them, this is who Jesus is, this is what Jesus has done. And if you believe in him, you can have life in his name. And if they will not come, you're going to shut them out as a warning. You have preached, you have told them the good news, my word, and, and they will not believe they are out. They're outsiders. Peter doesn't have any authority inherent to himself. His authority is only in the word. The church has no authority in and of itself. Its authority is only in the fact that it preaches what Jesus said. Listen to this message. If you will believe it, you may have life. If you will not believe it, you there's no entrance into the kingdom for you. 
This is what Peter and the apostles and the church are to do. They are authorized by Jesus to speak for him and to call people to believe and to warn those who will not. This is what we're supposed to do. And this is what we do in our ministries. We throw open the door and say, this is who Jesus is. If you will turn and trust in him, you may come in and find life in his name. It's good to give bread to hungry people. Hungry people need bread, and God is pleased when hungry people are fed. It is good (coughs) to provide friendship for lonely people. It is good to announce justice and to fight for justice for hurting people. That's good, but it's not good enough. We are to proclaim the message of the Lord Jesus. Will we succeed in this? Our little outpost on Walnut Hill Road will have ups and downs, highs and lows. We may not last forever. But will the people of Jesus succeed? Absolutely. Because this is Jesus' work. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning about 10 days shy of our 47th birthday as a congregation. We're grateful to you that for 47 years we have had the privilege of announcing life and welcome and peace with God through the Lord Jesus. We ask you that in your mercy to us you would grant us 47 more years that you would guard us, Lord, from drift, that you would infuse within all of us and in our ministries this great joy in proclaiming life in Jesus' name, that children and seniors and teenagers and adults would hear us as we proclaim this glad truth. Help us, protect us, Preserve us according to your kindness. And if that is not your good pleasure, give us confidence in your work through other congregations to welcome people into your kingdom. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying,